3: Boris Johnson famously told business to F off. But this week, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was a little more conciliatory. This government is unashamedly pro-business,
0: it's as simple as that.
3: Welcome to The Political Fix, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times with me, George Parker. Coming up, Rishi Sunak is hoping to win back support in the business community even as Labour conducts what it doesn't like to call a prawn cocktail offensive, an attempt to woo the financial community with a series of breakfasts, lunches and dinners. The FT's Markets Editor, Katie Martin, and Deputy Political Editor, Jim Picard are on hand to look at the Labour and Tory recipes. Plus, we'll look ahead to next week's local elections, what to expect. I've been out and about in Lincolnshire and will be comparing notes with the FT's political correspondent, Jasmine Cameron-Shileshi. He's been out on the mean streets of Surrey with analysis from our columnist, Robert Shrimsley. Thank you all for joining. It was back in 1992 when the then Environment Secretary Michael Heseltine launched a scornful attack on the Labour Party's attempts to win support among the business community. Labour ministers had been whining and dining leaders in the city. Mr Heseltine bemoaned the prawn cocktails that had been eaten. Never, he said. Have so many crustaceans died in vain? Well, this week, both parties were at it again. Rissi Sunak launched a major new effort to reconnect the Tories with UK PLC at an event called Business Connect. And Labour's Shadow Chancellor, Rachel Reeves, will next month up the ante to be the party of business when she travels to New York to meet big investors in the UK. So, which side is winning? With me are the FT's Katie Martin and Jim Pickard. So, Jim, what was the point of Rishi Sunak's bringing together 250-odd footsie bosses, C-suite people and all the rest of it.
0: So Rishi Sunak feels on the back foot in terms of government relations with... Business for several reasons. Firstly, of course, we have Brexit, which most business leaders in general were opposed to, with the dislocation at the border that has happened since then. Then we've had the political chaos, which has sent out a signal to global investors that this is probably not the kind of most reliable place to invest, you know, with changes of prime minister, changes of business secretaries, and, and all of that that happened under Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. And he just wants to say, you know, we are now entering a period of managerial stable political governance, where actually we can listen to you and do long term planning. And yes, we did put up corporation tax, but that was only because we had to pay for the COVID pandemic. Other than that, we are basically very pro business. And we're really sorry that Boris Johnson used the F word about you all. (laughs) So how did it go? as well as these events go. They tend to get flagged up in advance and and then they're basically just a load of people in suits schmoozing in a conference centre and and they're not that exciting in, in and of themselves. It's all about the message they send out. And of course, Labour has been breathing down the Conservative Party's neck on this particular issue ever since Keir Starmer became leader and ever since Rachel Reeves became Shadow Chancellor because they have made it one of their missions to go out there and proactively woo business, tell them that they pose no threat to the business world and for the Labour Party it's all about basically drawing a line under the Jeremy Corbyn anti-business era.
3: Okay, we'll come on to Labour in a minute. I mean, I, I heard that people said it was generally a positive reception that Sunak got. He took quite a few questions over an hour. Took some quite difficult questions actually, didn't he, about the government should Scrap the tax on shopping by overseas visitors. Um, So he took some
0: tough questions. But business leaders never sort of throw eggs and rotten tomatoes at visiting political dignitaries. They're they're always quite a polite occasion, aren't they? And everyone's nice. That's probably true. So, Katie,
3: how much is Sunak having to battle the headwinds created by the Boris Johnson and Liz Truss era?
4: Yeah, I think there's still a certain amount of unpacking of that that the Tory Party is having to do right now. You know, investors that I speak to and bankers that I speak to are just Every day they wake up and, you know, praise the skies for the fact that we don't have that kind of utterly chaotic management of the economy that we had a certain period around six months ago. We cannot go back to that. And investors recognise that the current government is much more stable. Nonetheless, it's really striking that, um, generally speaking, even when you're around, you know, a year, 18 months out from a general election, you start to hear investors saying, well, what would it look like if we had a Labour government? And generally speaking, there's this kind of weird knee-jerk reaction, which is to say left-wing governments are bad for markets and right-wing governments are good for markets because, you know, left-wing governments tend to throw money around in, in places they shouldn't necessarily... But I'm not picking up any alarm whatsoever over the prospect of a Labour government this time around, even the more kind of conservative, somewhat more, I'm going to say, reactionary um, investors that are out there are perfectly comfortable with the idea of a Labour administration. They see Rachel Reeves as a very sensible pair of hands. They think that this is a government that's not going to rock the boat. It's not going to go back to where we were with the mini budget. So although investors are, broadly speaking, delighted to see that we've got much more of a kind of sensible policy framework now, then very relaxed about the possibility that this could flip into a whole different party after a very long time. Just on the
3: Tories, first of all, do you think, is like is starting to turn things around, or is it just such a big mountain to climb after the last few years of pretty bad relations?
4: In terms of rebuilding trust and confidence of investors, a large part of the damage that was done at the time of the mini-budget has been undone. Mm. You know, that so-called more on risk premium, the kind of extra cost of borrowing that was layered on top of all sorts of borrowers, and that trickles down to everyone's mortgages and corporate borrowing and all the rest of it. All of that got more expensive after the mini-budget just because the gilt market went into meltdown. That has largely been fixed. So it's largely been parked as an issue. But we all have long memories. We know what happened and what came out of that particular party and those particular internal party dynamics. So it hasn't quite been forgiven by markets yet, but investors can see that we have got a new broom. And is Brexit still an issue? Uh, I think it's safe to say that investors would like it to be acknowledged that it is a drag on growth and that it does, on the margins, feed into inflation, which is a huge problem for the UK economy, even more so than a lot of other G7 economies. I think that investors would like to see a little bit more transparency around that from both sides of the political divide, actually. But again, I don't think there are very many money managers out there that think that this can be unwound.
3: No. Now, Jim, Labour hates it being called a prawn cocktail offensive. Mm. What exactly is the 21st century equivalent and what exactly are Labour doing?
0: So they have breakfasts, I think most Tuesday mornings with various business leaders. They had a big kind of gathering like a summit down in Canary Wharf a few months ago. They have a Labour conference. They basically have a whole business day with you know loads of events going on. And they are predicting that this year they'll be oversubscribed and they will have to turn people away, which may or may not be their own PR, but we know that last year they they had a bigger turn out of business people than they'd had any time since they were turfed out by the electorate in 2010. And there is a feeling among a lot of lobbyists and business people that, you know, now is the time to be talking to Labour because they are entering their period of drawing up their manifesto, which will go on through the summer. And at some point, this very turgid process, the manifesto will come out at the end. And, And once the manifesto is written, then you as a business will have basically no chance of influencing what Labour's policies will be, in your field, going to the general election. So now is a time where there's a lot of interest in this. One lobbyist said to me this week that basically business people, when they have these events with with Labour, politicians are like bees around the honeypot. And I think there's a really interesting question here about... are Labour's policies going to be pro-business or not pro-business or all the rest of it? I think on one level it's quite a naive approach because you know there are certain issues like the level of corporation tax which affect most businesses, but there will be some sectors that will lose out from a Labour government. You know, if your business is making coal-fired energy generation, then bad luck. If you run a chain of private schools, then you're going to lose your charity status. If you're in private equity, you're going to be taxed in, in a different way. But if you're in the business of making components for electric cars or if you're in the business of wind turbines, these are great industries to be in because they're planning huge subsidies for those industries. So, you know, there are going to be winners and losers. I think what's important from a a kind of wooing by Keir Starmer, Rachel Rees, and let's not forget Jonathan Reynolds, who's the Shadow Business Secretary, who is also hugely business-friendly and a very affable guy, you know, the the mood music is really important politically.
3: And Casey, what are people you're speaking to in the city saying about the Labour offer?
4: Well, I think what they're doing is looking over to the experience of the U.S., which has thrown ungodly amounts of money at the green energy transition and said, why don't we do a bit of this? Because this is just absolutely lit a fire under renewable technologies in the States. There are suddenly loads of really innovative companies that want to be there, that want to be building there, that are creating hundreds of thousands of jobs over there. And, you know, on the EU side, they're looking jealously over at the success of the Inflation Reduction Act. But over in the UK, there's definitely a sense that we could have a bit of that too. And, you know, industrial strategy used to be a little bit of a kind of, you know, dirty phrase. There was this idea that government shouldn't be kind of telling business what to do. But you can tell us what to do as long as you're going to throw some money at us at the same time. We're quite happy with that. So... I think that's the kind of international consensus is that there is a climate emergency. We have to do something about it. And why don't we turn that into a business opportunity rather than painting it as some sort of threat? And in that respect, the Labour Party
3: is pretty much in line with that way of thinking. Isn't it? I mean, it's £28 billion pounds a year they plan to spend on green tech. Y-
0: yes, a Labour government would be massively more interventionist on this stuff. And the Tory government, the main difference with the USA is that Labour would actually do it through partially through state-owned company as well, whereas Joe Biden's doing it through the private sector.
3: Okay, so what about that? Jim mentioned some of the policies which probably aren't going to be so popular with some FT readers, the <laughs> crackdown on non-DOMs, private equity tax breaks, VAT for tax breaks for private schools going down the pan. Does that really bug
4: people? I think what the majority of investors are focused on is, you know, first of all, do no harm. So investors can see that what's happened to UK productivity just as a result of the huge number of strikes at the moment. And this is something that doesn't go down well. I think that, you know, they are looking for governments that are not too interventionist in the sense of just layering lots and lots of regulation, particularly on top of energy companies that are a big part of the UK stock market. But would markets sell off in the event that private schools lost their charitable status? I can't see it.
0: No. Whereas if the Jeremy corbyn John mcdonald partnership had won in 2019 with their promise to expropriate £300 billion worth of shares and nationalise six industries, I think there could have been some quite exciting, heady days in the markets.
3: And how important is it, Jim, do you think, for parties, I mean, particularly the Labour Party, I suppose, to be able to establish their business credentials? I mean, it, it was no way, actually, I not to say disastrous, but very bad for Ed Miliband, for example, back at the 2015 election, that he wasn't able to bring business with him and people looked at him and, he became labelled Red Ed, of course, and all the rest of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's a very complicated one because the corollary of that is that in the EU referendum, there were all those lists of business people begging voters to to vote to stay in the European Union. The overwhelming majority of serious senior business leaders were Remain, and yet the public totally ignored that. And if anything, it. it enhance the sense that the establishment will remain and that the people will leave. And so you know, it can be a bit of a double-edged sword. Being taken seriously by business is kind of a prerequisite of being a credible prime minister. So I, th- I think at some basic level, you need to be taken seriously by business and not have them thinking that you're scary with radical ideas that could ruin every everything for national finances and household finances. But beyond that, that you you probably start to get diminishing returns at some point.
3: And Casey, okay, so it's not that big a mystery, is it? Business are fairly promiscuous when it comes to politics, aren't they? Look at the oh, opinion yeah. look at the opinion polls work out who's going to win. And basically, they're at that party conference, aren't they?
4: Back the horse that's already several furlongs. <laughs> that was
3: a good strategy. The media would
0: never do that. <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, quite. But yes, I think, you know, as long as the Labour Party can keep throwing off the impression that they're not going to do anything remotely like either Jeremy Corbyn was proposing... Or like we saw from the brief trust government, then I think they're on reasonably safe ground in terms of keeping that confidence. But again, you know, were a general election to go the other way, I do think that markets definitely see the Sunak administration as significantly more competent than than the one before. I hate to make predictions about anything, but I I can't (laughs) see the next general election being a massive market mover without some sort of radical policy shift from either side.
3: Casey Martin and Jim Pickard, thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm. On Thursday, more than 8,000 seats will be contested at 230 councils across England. Mayoral elections are also taking place in Bedford, Leicester, Mansfield and Middlesbrough. With me are the FT's Jasmine cameron Shaleshi, who's been knocking on doors in the so-called Tory Blue Wall in the South, and our columnist, Robert Shrimsey. So, Robert, where are these local elections taking place? And, of course, crucially, where are they not taking place? And how important are they for giving us a picture of the national situation?
2: Okay, well, like all local elections, it's a bit of a patchwork, but primarily these are in England, in the non-metropolitan authorities. They're not in big cities like London, for example. But there are elections. They're sometimes only a third of the councils rather than the full council. What's the significance of this? Well, as with all elections, it's a better barometer of how the parties are doing than opinion polls, because these are actually people bothering to turn out to vote. Obviously, These are always very low turnout elections, so it's the most committed. But it's quite a useful indicator because the last time these particular elections were held, four years ago, both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party did fairly badly. It's unusual, isn't it? It it is unusual. It was the plague on both your houses period of the early part of 2019. This was Theresa May in the middle of the Brexit chaos and 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 Jeremy Corbyn facing a Brexit back Exactly. So it was a terrible time for the main parties. So both of them in a sense, ought to be doing better. Uh, and yet we're in this period of massive expectations management where both sides will be trying to play down any possibility of doing well. But I think the key test is, is Labour making progress? Is it maintaining the leads that people think it should be maintaining that pointed to government? And equally, is there any kind of Rishi Sunak bounce?
3: Yeah. Now, Jasmine, you've been down to Surrey, traditionally pretty safe Conservative territory. but There's a fascinating contest going on there between the Conservatives and the Lib Dems. Particularly along the A3 corridor, you know, if you if you look at it stretching out of London, sort of seats like Richmond, Twickenham, Kingston have already gone to the Liberal Democrats. Esher and Walson, the next one along, Dominic Raab seat in danger. Then further down into Woking, Guildford, South West Surrey, and places like that. What sort of picture did you pick up down there?
1: Well, there's a lot of Lib Dem activity there at the moment. So since their shock by election win in Chesham and Amersham, the Lib Dems have been heavily targeting the so-called blue wall. In particular, they're really interested in Surrey because they think they can appeal to namely two types of voters. So you have one voter who was perhaps a more um, traditional um, conservative, but they've been turned off by Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. They think they've got um, you know, an eager audience with this type of voter. And then they also have another type of voter called the Surrey Shuffler. So this is individuals who have moved from London, often to places like Surrey, into the commuter belt to get more space. Often they're used to voting Labour, but they realise that in an area such as the Blue Wall, it's often a two-horse race between the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives. So again, the Liberal Democrats think they have a potentially receptive audience. And so in terms of some of the messages that we're hearing, so the Lib Dems are really keen to tap into some of these local issues and broaden them out. So they're focusing on the running of local nhs services and saying well we need to look at what the you know the handling of the nhs more broadly by this government and so they're using these local issues to tap into a feeling which i think is actually quite strong on the blue wall you have people who are you know often quite affluent they're paying quite a lot in tax and they're looking at their public services and thinking what are we getting for our money and they're trying to tap into the sense of a social contract has been broken under conservatives that you work hard pay your taxes and the state supports you
3: and of course we haven't mentioned sewage of course which is quite (laughs) a big theme of the liberal democrat campaign across the country isn't it sewage and rivers
1: Yeah, and initially I was actually quite sceptical because, I mean, maybe this is quite a typical London perspective. I kind of thought, who really cares that much about rivers? But actually, as soon as you go out of the cities, a lot of people do care about their local environment. And I think, again, they're tapping into this, um, this feeling of public services breaking down because you would assume that the government is ensuring that our rivers are clean and safe and the Lib Dems are arguing, well, hang on a minute, they're not clean and safe. And it's as a a result of Tory government and lack of investment in some of our natural resources.
3: So the Lib Dems did do pretty well, actually, the last time these these council seats were up in 2019. I think they gained about 700 seats on the night. But I think it's right to say the Lib Dems are quite confident of making further progress this time. Robert, in the red wall, the Labour Party are trying to play down their prospects, aren't they?
2: Well, I mean, we're seeing this ridiculous process that we see... Every election where both sides talk about how they really will be very lucky to to make any gains at all. I mean, you saw the Conservative Party chairman who persistently pushing out this figure of, you know, people are saying we're going to lose a thousand seats, which means that they're absolutely confident they're going to be nowhere near that at all. (laughs) Labour, meanwhile, will be playing down their expectations. But it's very clear that the Tories are working particularly hard in certain areas that were very important to them in their last general election victory around Tees Valley, in some of the middle and strongholds, places like Dudley, in places like Stoke and as uh, going further north, places like Red Cart and Middlesbrough, where their vote has been strong in the past and where they're particularly playing things like the immigration issue, the small boats issue, which has risen up the salience levels mm. for voters. It plays particularly strongly in places like that. You and I were talking to somebody a little earlier from the Labour side, saying that you know, in the campaigns they're seeing, the Conservatives aren't talking about the cost of living issue at all. They're talking relentlessly about immigration and small boats and how they're going to tackle it. And that seems to be what they think is their trump card in those areas. It's fascinating
3: isn't it? That, you know, the polls all suggest that the economy is the main battleground and will be at the next election. But mm. people are talking about other things in these elections. What you say small boats or sewage in rivers or mm. the inability to get an NHS dentist there's a whole load of things actually sort of going on in the country, which I think the national media don't always necessarily focus on. So Jasmine, look, what do you think will happen if the Tories do, let's say, lose hundreds of seats? Do you think Rishi Sunak will just shrug that off?
1: I think so. And that because they are briefing such negative numbers that actually, you know, if they do lose a couple of hundred seats, that can be talked up as a win. And in some ways, I think strategist, they'll be pointing to Sunak's success on sort of bigger policy issues for example getting the Windsor framework done looking like he's made some progress on small boats and saying well actually we've only been in government for six months, we've managed to you know, achieve some major wins we've managed to calm the Conservative Party down give us more time when it comes the, to the national election, we'll have more things to take to the ballot box. And I think in some ways the, the pressure is on Labour to actually prove that it can, as Robert was saying, transform its, its high poll ratings into turnout in the ballot box.
3: Mm. Robert, Keir Starmer, anecdotally, how's he actually doing on the ground? I mean, I was up in um, Lincolnshire this week, very safe Tory terrain, but something that keeps coming up is the fact that people just don't seem to really like Keir Starmer very much. Don't know what he stands for and they think he's a bit of a moaner.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that the, the evidence keeps coming back the same, which is that Labour's doing pretty well. Starmer is doing much less well. And it's very clear that he's not capturing any affection. He's not enthusing or winning admiration. But he, in one sense, that hasn't been the game plan. The game plan has been to reassure, yeah. to slay all the dragons from the Corbyn era and say, look, you can actually trust us. You know, it, you may not love me, but I can be trusted as prime minister, where he's been quite successful, I think, in that respect. And I think what we're seeing now is there's a battle of nerves going on in both parties where both sides are being urged to hold their nerve. And there's still an enormous gap, by the way, between Labour and the Conservatives. But as the polls tighten, people start ramping up the pressure on Keir Starmer give out more of the policy, explain what you're going to do more, offer more optimism, more vision. And with Rishi Sunak, you know, if he doesn't begin to show a bit of movement in the polls, his MPs will start to panic again. At the moment, they're quite pleased with how it's gone for the last few months and they're thinking, oh, we've got a, a winner here and he's going to start narrowing the gap. So while I don't expect any great upheaval in either party after this election, it does go to the nervousness that both sides are feeling. And I think the battle that they're going to be fighting is less a battle with the public mind and less a battle even with the media about who won th- these elections, but the battle for the hearts of their, and minds of their own party members and their own MPs.
3: Yeah. Now, we've talked a bit about uh, Keir Starmer, Jasmine. But what about um, Rishi Sunak? He, he, he plainly is still trying to sort of establish himself with the electorate. People seem to have clocked the fact he's quite technocratic. A lot of people mention the fact he's quite rich. Hmm. Have you detected any sense that he's not starting to turn things around for the Conservatives?
1: I think, in some ways, Sunak definitely has an uphill battle, and that he's coming in the wake of Boris Johnson of Liz Truss of coming in the wake of individuals who have had such an impact on the public psyche and such an impact on the economy. I think it's very difficult for him to detangle himself from that and establish himself as an individual, especially because he doesn't have any major key policy ideas to cling on to. And what was quite interesting when I did some on-ground reporting in Surrey is that the impacts of, say, for example, the Trust's mini-budget are just being felt, people who were just going on to new mortgages. And so in some ways, there's a delayed effect where mm. the leaders have gone, Trust and Johnson, but the impacts of their policies are only now trickling through and it's Sunak that has to be the leader on top of all of that. So I think there is an element of he's only been in power for six months, people want to give him a chance, but I don't think there's an overwhelming sense of warmth towards him. I think there is a wait-and-see approach being taken by the public.
2: I also think, I mean, This is one of those areas where there's a gap between the narrative that you get coming out of Westminster and what we're actually seeing. So out of Westminster, the story is Rishi Sunak's come in, he's restored order, competence, people are seeing a capable prime minister they like the look of again, polls are narrowing, and these things are all sort of true. But if you actually look at the state of the opinion polls, the Conservatives are still less popular than they were before Liz Truss became Prime Minister. He is leading a party that is still less popular than it was under Boris Johnson as he was getting to his most unpopular stage. So it's true that things are better than they were under Liz Truss, but actually the notion that he is really cutting through with the country and that people suddenly like the Conservatives again, that's simply not borne out by what you are seeing in opinion polls and what you're hearing from voters. Well, next week, if you're lucky enough to be in an area with elections taking
3: place, don't forget to go out and vote and don't forget to take your voter ID with you. Jasmine and Robert, thanks very much for joining us. And that's it for this episode of the FT's Political Fix. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released and we also appreciate positive reviews and ratings. The FT's Political Fix was presented by me, George Parker, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Gabert Doyon. The executive producer is Manuela Zaragoza. The sound engineer is Jan Sigsworth. Until next time, thanks for listening.
2: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat,